Let's bow your together in prayer. Lord, we are filled with a sense of wonder when we when we remind ourselves or when we are reminded of your greatness and then contrast that with our weakness and our limitations and the fact that we are mere creatures, but you are our creator. But Lord, we thank you that as we read the word of God, we are assured that every person has dignity and value, that every life is important to you, and that we are crowned with honor by you. And so we pray, Father, you would help us to understand the implications of this as we deal with life in a world where oftentimes that's not the way in which people's lives are viewed. And so we pray, Father, that your word would have its way in our own thinking, our own values, our lives in a way that would honor you. You are the one who is indeed all glorious, all powerful, and worthy of all honor. We pray in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to find your way to Exodus, the book of Exodus. We're going to read a part of the first chapter of Exodus. And as you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge that one of the things that I did the other day with my wife is we went to see uh, the movie uh, that is not something that I would call entertaining, but something that is uh, to be quite profoundly um, reflected on, and that's the movie Selma. And uh, I must say, having watched the film, it is quite brutal in places. Uh, there is some rough language in places, but I do think that there is an attempt to convey a very sad and pitiful expression uh, that was widely um, tolerated in our society uh, regarding a hatred toward people of a different race. And I must say, having watched that and realized that in my lifetime, we've seen such dramatic changes. Uh, I'm thankful for those who have taken the stand. I'm thankful for those who uh, began to realize this is not something that is tolerable. This is not something that should be uh, somehow just uh, ignored and allowed to go on. But as they made the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, they confronted, I'm sure, a widespread view that was hideous and certainly offensive to God. It brought to my mind the statement that is found in Romans chapter 3. Whenever man, mankind, whenever people uh, seek to try to somehow operate as if God does not exist or somehow think that they know better than God and they're going to operate in ways that are contrary to God, thumb their nose at God, uh, it seems to me that, that, that Paul's description of such a mentality and such behavior is this. There is no fear before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 3, verse 18. And as I've thought about that statement, I realize it's not just the people who lived down south in Alabama in the early 60s that were filled with no fear of God in their eyes. It's a prevalent problem among all of us and among all societies and all uh, civilizations. But we're here today to reflect on the fact that God has compassion upon and has provided a savior for people who do not fear him. And this savior never lived a day where he did not fear the father in heaven and that God provided a rescuer who would stand against the forces of evil and who did stand against the forces of evil and that his power, he came with great power and yet he laid down his life, not in abusive 
abuse of that power, but he yielded himself in weakness in order to break the various systems of evil that exist in this world. And by establishing his kingdom, he laid down his life on a cross. Those who repent and those who trust in him, it's a wonderful truth that it is Jesus Christ, the Savior, who lifts from them and from their shoulders a moral guilt that otherwise would crush them. After years and years and many different examples in which we've all defied the one and true ruler of the universe. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has power not only to deal with our guilt, but to power to change us, power to deal with things that go on in our hearts, our viewpoints, our, our values, the way we deal with other people, our motivations. And the response that we make to the gospel and to Christ's love shown to us, his grace that we receive in the gospel, that we are to be drawn into a new way of relating to God. And I would like to suggest to you the way we relate to God in light of the gospel is a very helpful summary that Jerry Bridges has made in his uh, book, he talks about the fearing of God, and he says this, two words, reverential awe. Reverential awe is the appropriate way to respond and to relate to God. A reverential awe that pervades the inner workings of our hearts, that, we are, that it, it comes down to our motivations, it affects our, our desires even, that because we have a fear of God, it leads to a desire to obey God out of respect, out of a desire to honor him, out of a desire to, to recognize that he truly is awesome. Not just in a, in a uh, simplistic way we say that, but he truly evokes awe from our hearts in a reverential way. And so therefore, I would like to suggest to you that God, I believe in light of the gospel, is raising up a generation of people and individuals who fear him, who are operating with a different worldview, and through his grace-filled gospel, God is calling forth a people who are guided by a different internal compass. Not by the compass of the world, but they, uh, they come with a way of looking at people in life with courage and compassion that's rooted in the fear of God. And I want to reflect on two people who I think are examples of this kind of work of grace and the work of God by his spirit in the hearts of people in light of the fact that he is redeeming God. And their story is found in the first chapter of Exodus. I hope you have it in front of you there, chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Having read in the previous verses that the people of Israel, the Israelites who are now displaced, they are refugees in a sense because of a famine. They have now lived in Egypt for a long time where the Nile is running and there's plenty of water and they have lots of food so they've stayed there and now they've lived under a form of oppression for many years as slaves, indentured servants. And now they read in verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them and let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. And so God was good to the midwives 
and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it, came, and it came about because of the midwives feared God that he established households for them. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. I want to look at this brief text this morning and I want to explore it in a way which I hope we can find and walk away with three different ways that the fear of God can be manifested in the people of God into a godless society, what that looks like. Well, first of all, I want to look at the context of fearing God as it found here in Exodus chapter 1. There are people who are living an impoverished and oppressed lives. The context of fearing God, first of all, we find a people impoverished and oppressed lives. There are 400 years that are taking place between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus 1. And in this period of years, there is ongoing and chronic suffering and hardship. Generation after generation comes and goes, and things go from bad to worse over that time for the, for the children of Israel. They and thousands of other people were coerced into making bricks out of mud. And by the way, I've read archaeological uh, articles about why they put straw in the bricks and all these kind of things. It's all something that archaeology confirms indeed did take place. And they are now providing coerced hard labor to carry out this massive building project uh, that took place among the Egyptian empire. And the ruler of Egypt is taking steps to ensure that these Jewish refugees are not going to align themselves somehow with other political foreign powers and overthrow the Egyptians. And so you'll notice in verse 10 in, your, in the text there in chapter 1, it mentions that there were taskmasters, they afflicted these Israelites with hard labor. In verse 13, they compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And then in verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor. And they imposed this hard labor upon them rigorously. In other words, they put them under tremendous amount of oppressive pressure. Now, despite all these harsh conditions, these Hebrews were blessed by God somehow in the middle of all this darkness. And what happened? They kept having babies. They kept seeing their families grow in size as they multiplied. Verse 12. And the Egyptian leadership, of course, in Egypt, the Egyptian king, he had no fear of God. He had no concern about what the God of the Israelites was about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was no fear of God for his eyes. And so he viewed this reproductive blessing of seeing an increase in the number of Israelites among him in their families, large families. He viewed that as a threat to his own political security. And so he did what he thought was wise in his own eyes. And he determined that the way to resolve this problem is that we would bring about the enforcement of genocide. Just kill off. A, person, a percentage of these new people being born. And so the king of Egypt met with these two chief midwives, verse 15. The midwives who are assisting and overseeing this large process of how people can be assisted in childbirth during that time. And he told them, put all to death every male baby that was born. And they were mandated basically to carry out 
gender-based infanticide, which, by the way, has now been carried out for a generation or two in China, where there is just a, a dearth of women being born. You're only allowed to have one child, so they all want a male. And so there's been a whole eradication of uh, women in China. Uh, and, and look at the consequences. No one to marry as the generation has been raised. We won't get off into that. But anyway, it even happens in our world today. And so here, the, the uh, killing all these male babies, the king of Egypt attempted to prevent, his concern is to prevent a number of future soldiers who would then be able to fight against him and his armies. There's one problem. The king and all his scheming, all his planning, didn't count on the kind of thing you read about in the text right there in verse 17. These midwives feared God. To me, that's one of the key phrases in this text. They feared God. They did not fear Pharaoh, did not fear the king of Egypt. They feared God. They refused the king's mandate. And they yielded themselves to the supreme ruler, the creator of all human life. And they knew, and they had been taught, I'm sure, what had been passed down to them, and that is that all life comes from God. And to destroy the life of those that God created in an unauthorized way would be to overstep their bounds. So more than likely, they knew the decree there in Genesis 9 that says that whoever sheds man's blood by his own blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made human beings. So the creator of human life is the ultimate ruler of human life, not the king of any particular government. It is God himself. And his standards require us to value the life of every single person, male and female, young and old, black, brown, white, rich, poor, sick, healthy, born and unborn. And would you notice this idea of fearing God in the text there, verse 17? I would suggest to you one way of understanding the fear of God is to understand these kinds of, of aspects to this fear. There's a sense of, of wonder, a sense of admiration for God, a sense of veneration of God. But there is a sense in which there is a sense of of fear being a sense afraid of God in a good way. That's why we call it reverential awe. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. It is right and appropriate to be fearful of God. And fearing God, it means more than just being afraid of Him. And I want to be sure that you hear me say that. We're not talking about just being shaken in your boots and thinking about God. There's a sense in which being so respectful and so blown away by the greatness of God and being so humbled by that and respectful of who He is in awe of Him, that we do what? That we think through what we're doing because all of life is lived before God. So we read in Proverbs these interesting statements about those who fear God. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to do what? To hate evil. So if I truly fear God, then one of the ways I'll see that is I will hate evil. Chapter 3, verse 3, the fear of the Lord and turn away from evil. Chapter 16, verse 6, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And in Deuteronomy 6, 24, it implies that the fear of God, or, uh, if we fear God, we will certainly want to follow his laws. The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. 
Many of you may have read the book by C.S. Lewis in a series of uh, Narnia books. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, there's a scene in which the children encounter the figure that is representative of God, Aslan, the lion. And so the children are sort of questioning, well, wait a minute, you, you know, you're approaching this lion and, they, and the little Lucy says, is, is he quite safe? I, I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, uh, that you will, I'm sure, no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then the question comes from Lucy, then he isn't safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There's a sense in which we ought to be living our lives with a sense of fear of God. He is God. And there's appropriateness to that fear, reverential awe, I think is a good way to say it. Despite, I'm sure, much intimidation and pressure and threats, these two women chose to obey the laws of God out of their reverential awe of God. Their faith in God was built on this proper view and estimation of God, the rightful dominion that God should have over his creatures. He alone deserves to be revered. And they, they sought not to try to live life as if God did not exist. They're living life knowing that God does exist. There are absolutes and therefore they are not attempting to be God and replace their ways with his ways. As I think about this example of these women, I ask myself, has the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrated my heart to the point, to the extent that my response to this grace I receive in Christ leads me to fear God as characteristic of my life in living for Christ? Does the fear of God translate into respecting the hum human dignity of every person that bears his image in this culture, a culture that has cheapened life, views people as throwaway or as people who are really not significant at all unless they are rich or famous or good-looking or, or quite accomplished in some area? Let me suggest some practical ways we can do this. May I suggest that men, every time you're tempted, and many of us are, let's be honest, to click on pornography on our computers, that in clicking on that image online, you are supporting the notion that women deserve to be reduced to the levels of sexual objects rather than as people created in the image of God whose lives are to be honoring to Christ, whose lives are, are therefore important to God. And every time you click, you're supporting a whole industry that is built up around the abuse of women, many of whom have been uh, taken and there's been sexual exploitation that has produced these kinds of images and the kind of trafficking that oftentimes is a percentage of those kind of images. We have to be asking ourselves, is this how I am conducting myself and lost, lost the sense of the fear of God? The gospel calls us to fear God, to fight the battle against feeding the immoral sexual lust. On the other hand, I would just suggest that for those of us who are ladies here, I believe that in the fear of God, we can resist the notion of living in the social media world 
in which we seek to build a kingdom of our own images and our own ideas, in which we seek to follow the temptation oftentimes to make ourselves appear a certain way or to use the social media opportunities to draw attention to ourselves in inappropriate ways. Oftentimes we can do that as well through the various ways in which we choose our clothing and how we present ourselves. It's oftentimes lacking in modesty, seeking to present ourselves as someone who is enticing to other people, forgetting the fact that we are called to live in the fear of God, honoring Him and following the kinds of ways in which we present ourselves in showing appropriateness in, in seeking to do that. And also in our online communication, being careful that we not destroy other people and other reputations with our words, destroying people's lives through just typing in, on a computer somewhere. These are the kind of things that I think grow out of a sense of fear of God that the gospel can and oftentimes develop within us. Let me move forward, though, and think about the fruit of the fear of God, because that was very interesting to look at the situation of these two women. The fruit of the fear of God, by the way, we're talking about is courage here. Here's Shifra and Puah. They faced a unique situation. None of us are obviously in the same situation. We're being ordered to kill all these baby boys under our supervision. But however, we are pressured to go along in our culture today with an opinion that says that anything can be morally justified if it's deemed useful, helpful. So many today are celebrating the idea of harvesting embryonic children for stem cells, using these stem cells to find a cure for various diseases like Parkinson's disease, which is awful. And there are many other diseases that are awful and many people live with tremendous difficulty and suffering. But we're being told today that if it gives greatest possible benefit to the greatest number of people, therefore it must be right. This kind of fuzzy thinking grows in the absence of the fear of God. This perspective paves the way for horrific consequences because the end does not justify the means if it offends the God who creates life. And I would just again remind us that it is the weak among us who are to be protected. It is the most vulnerable that need to be defending. It is those who are unable to speak for themselves. They need others to speak up for them. In 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave the commencement address at Harvard University. And one of the phrases that he spoke on that occasion was this statement. He said, here's the person that lived uh, under tremendous Soviet oppression for many years in the gulags. And he wrote this, he said, from ancient times, a decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end. It is those who have courage who stand against the forces of evil and who not just kowtow down to them, but who take a stand for those who perhaps can't stand for themselves. And so what does Joseph and Mary do? Finding themselves in a very difficult situation with a child just born and who probably are not very well-to-do people. They had to make a long trek down to Egypt because Herod the Great decided that, again, every child under the age of two, two and under, would be put to death in Bethlehem and the surrounding towns. And so what they do? They courageously defended the one child that was granted to them by God. They endured many inconveniences and hardships as they acted in the fear of God. The gospel gives us courage to move beyond our comfort and our desire for approval. 
The gospel bestows upon all of us tremendous blessings. The blessings of knowing that we are fully adopted by God and can enjoy the full rights and blessings as a child of God, fully loved, fully accepted, having the full favor of Christ, not on the basis of things that we've done to try to commend ourselves to God, but on the basis of grace. Jesus Christ has borne our guilt upon himself and our all of the punishment we deserve has fallen upon Christ. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. And therefore, because of Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, we therefore can experience greater boldness and courage to suffer with Jesus, knowing that he has died for us and therefore we belong to him and we're secure in him entirely. Therefore, we can join him in the fellowship of his sufferings and doing what's right and taking our stand. I read an interview not too long ago about a gentleman who uh, lived a very active life. Mark, Mark Pickup is his name. What a name, last name, Pickup. I think I might have asked for a different, maybe Peekup, we could say, would be a better way to say it. P-I-C-K-U-P. Anyway, that's his name. That's what he gave. That's what he received. He can't, he can't help it. Anyway, he's living his life, a very active fellow, very physically uh, athletic, uh, athletic fellow. He gets married, has a couple kids, and then he found himself extremely weak, unable to walk. Things got worse. Couldn't figure out what it was for the longest time. Finally, after weeks and weeks and weeks, many, many tests, ups and downs, they found out he had MS, multiple sclerosis. And here he now is limited to a wheelchair. He's unable to move around on his feet anymore. And it was about the same time that... Um, Christopher Reeve, if you recall, the man who played uh, Superman in the movies, he also uh, became a person unable to move about. He was a quadriplegic, and he began to use his influence and suggest that perhaps we ought to show the compassionate thing is to take the lives of those people, allow them opportunities to be, commit assisted suicide. And listen to the words of this Mark Pickup as he talks about, as a person now in a wheelchair with all these limitations, he says, I want life with dignity, not death with dignity. He says, after almost 18 years with this disease, I have come to the conclusion that we do not bestow dignity on a person by injecting them with poison when they're at their lowest point. In other words, what he's saying is that rather than thinking that we should fully embrace this idea of using the remains of infants that have now been killed and taking that material and then using it to somehow create improvements for his condition, he says no. So what gives my quality of life today is not being able to run or swim or ski, he says, is being able to love and to be loved, to think that I am still making a contribution to the world whether I am or not. It's very interesting to know that one of the greatest ways of courage, I think, in our world today is to live with a disability and to persist on and to continue to trust God, that God knows what he's doing and to face the difficulties of life as one who has many physical challenges in life. To me, it is a wonderful way to show honor and reverence and fear of Christ, to say, I will not complain, I will not be angry at God, I will yield to what he has ordained and trust him. I find it is those who are, those who are weak are those who teach many of us who think we're strong, that we're not really that strong. They are the ones who show us the power of Christ in their attempts to deal with the challenges they face every day. 
The gospel is that which creates a reverential, healthy fear of God. It motivates us to do in following Christ, to do the courageous thing. And I would suggest to you it means to honor marriage, to courageously abstain from sexual relations until you enter the covenant of marriage. The fear of God inspires us not to cheapen the exquisite gift of sexual intimacy that God has given to each one of us. And so, young person, I again would call you to read again and again and again in your young years, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7. Read them and reread them and say to yourself, God, teach me the fear of you as you save yourself for your marriage partner. And as married adults, again, encouraging us to remain faithful to our spouse in the fear of God. As again, reading Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, you say, well, some of us can say, well, I failed in that area. And certainly we all have. None of us have all feared God every day of our life. We've all failed in many other areas, and we still do fail. And may I suggest to you, my friends, the good text to read on that, on that occasion is, is Psalm 51. Here is David who comes back to the truths of the gospel saying, Lord, cleanse me, purge me, work within me a sense of my repentant heart toward you out of my fear, respect, and reverential awe for you. And that is where the gospel leads us toward the path of forgiveness, toward the path of cleansing, toward the, past, toward the path in which we find great delight in God and His grace. One final thought here. I don't want this to be uh, too much of a um, heavy message, but it is something that sobers us all. I want to suggest that the results of the fear of God, point number three, are sort of... Um, hinted at here at the end of the text, verses 20 and 21. The results of the fear of God here in this text are blessing. Verse 20, 21 says, God was good to the midwives. The people multiplied, became very mighty. It came about that because the midwives feared God, that he established households for them. All these amazing beneficial results came as a result of the courage of these women trying to make sure that these helpless little Hebrew boys had a chance to live. And God blessed their own individual families. I don't understand what all that means. I don't, mean, I don't understand if that means that they had not had their own children at that point and they were granted children or if they never were married and they were granted. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what it means to, uh, as he says there, established households for them. But here, think through the implications of what happened as a result of these women and what they did. If you recall, the children of Israel finally did escape from Egypt, and then they went through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then what happened? God said, all those who did the wandering all those years, the older generation, Moses and his generation, they were not entering into the new promised land. Who would enter into that promised land? The younger generation. The younger generation that these women preserved. The, one, the younger generation are the, are the ones that made it into the promised land. They're the ones who accompanied Joshua. They're the ones who went in and saw the walls fall down in Jericho. That is the generation of people that they allowed the blessing of God. And I would just again remind us that compromise and acquiescing, acquiescing to our culture of death leads to the further erosion of human dignity, resulting in feelings of guilt and shame and remorse. But those who follow in the fear of God enjoy tremendous blessing, knowing that there's forgiveness, knowing that there's cleansing, knowing that there's grace in, in, the, in the presence of Christ through the gospel. And here they are 
In the next chapter, chapter 2 of Exodus, doesn't mean all the problems went away. There's blessings, yes, but there's still ongoing challenges. And the pressure was to cast these children into the Nile, which was worshipped by the people of that day, thinking that they were going to show the supreme power of their gods. And here are the parents of Moses who refuse to do that. And they hide their little son for three months until they can't hide him anymore. And by faith, Hebrews 11.23 says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so what do they do? In, in desperation and in the sense of saying, we're just going to put our child out there. We're going to put him in this little boat in the bulrushes, in the water, a little boat. And what happens? <laughs> what an amazing providential hand of God in that the baby is heard, the baby is rescued. It is Pharaoh's own daughter who ends up adopting him, raising him, giving him opportunity to be with his birth mother during those years. It's an amazing story. And I'm just wondering, as I thought about that, are there not hundreds, are there not thousands of people who have in the fear and the faith in God courageously attempted to help those who were devalued, to help those who were discarded as throwaway people? How many Europeans secretly housed Jews during the Holocaust and brought unspeakable blessing to them? How many today, in the fear of God, extend love and advice and support and compassion to confused and abandoned pregnant women? through the care centers, particularly the one right here in Center Reach now, Soundview Ministry. How many people open their hearts and their homes and adopt orphans from around the world, incarnating the love of God, celebrating the value of every single person? Let me finish with this amazing story, <clears throat> how God works. Did you know that there are approximately over half a million fertilized eggs that are frozen and stored here in this, in this country. These are little babies that are conceived. Oftentimes it's done in the context of uh, the vitro fertilization process. And many are discarded by the parents because after a period of time, there's a lot of cost associated with maintaining and storing these fertilized eggs. I recently read about a couple, Paul and Susan Lim, and they chose to adopt Madeline, when she was a frozen embryo, created through in vitro fertilization, she was about only 100 cells in size. And doctors thawed out Madeline, if you think about it, placed her into the womb of the mother Susan, and she was born approximately nine months later. Baby Madeline, her courageous mother, both doing fine. I'm telling you, there's amazing blessing to be enjoyed by people who courageously, under an, a reverential awe of God, take small steps, sometimes big steps, to show that God is worthy to be obeyed. He is worthy to be served. He is worthy to be um, given our devotion and to show that we do care and love those around us who are also bearing the image of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these two women and so many others that we've seen down through history who have stood against the pressures and the big political forces and people in power, powerful places, 
who have cheapened life. And Lord, we thank you that there is a long history of people who have stood up, whether it was in Selma, Alabama, or whether it was in the Underground Railroad in our own country, or whether it's on those who, even at Soundview Ministry, right down the street in Center Reach and other places, Lord, in our society, adopting children, being foster parents, offering those who have life, Lord, showing them they are valuable in your eyes and in our eyes. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up among us a people who fear you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have reverential awe of you that results in clinging to Christ in the gospel, in recognizing that we clearly have no hope apart from Christ and his atoning blood shed for us. There is no forgiveness. There is no ability to live before you and enjoy you apart from Christ. Lord, I pray for today, if some of my comments have brought up painful chapters and things from the past of those, Lord, who have, for various reasons, made choices that they now regret, we pray that they might, on this day, in fear of you, humble themselves before Christ and treasure his work of grace on their behalf again and again and again. We thank you, Father, there is cleansing forgiveness in Christ. There's also wonderful love and a freeing sense of desire to serve you, to take a stand for you, and for those who are truly in need. We pray that you would empower us with your courage and fill us with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.